0: Today, my guest is Harry Kanan, the vice president of Karen Treatment Centers. I'm finding, and not surprisingly, that many treatment centers are run by people who have gone through the recovery process. And this is true for Harry. I heard his story recently, and although he is not a healthcare professional, I believe his story will resonate with those who are. I am of the belief that the more addiction and recovery stories we hear, it opens our eyes just a little bit more each time to the struggle and it humanizes that struggle. And in doing that, my hope is that it paves the way for those of us in the diversion monitoring world to approach our roles with genuine empathy for those people. And in doing so, we'll have more success in reaching them ultimately. So thank you for joining me today, Harry. I appreciate your willingness. You know, although you've probably shared this story countless times, I don't imagine it's easy to do. So I really do appreciate your willingness to do it. And so I will just now turn it over to you to tell us your story and what you have gone through.
1: Thanks, Terry. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a true pleasure to, to be here and have this conversation with you. I want to just mention you, you used a word that I think is so important, you know, to humanize this. Um, and I think that you know I'm grateful for you giving a platform to to talk about these issues and and talk about it so that we can see it as healthcare, right? That that people who are struggling with a substance use or alcohol use disorder, it's not a moral issue; it's a healthcare issue. Um, and I think you know along the lines of diversion and in the healthcare setting, it's so important that we we know that and we see that um, and we treat it and identify it that way. So. I'll tell you a little bit about my story i'll try to keep it brief i could go on and on but you know i i always like to start by saying i'm somebody who grew up in an incredibly loving home i'm not you know a a victim of any major trauma Um, i have two incredible parents that raised me in a loving and compassionate way and you know i say all that to say that you know i went through the dare program i did not believe or ever foresee that i was going to be someone um that was really in a bad spot with an opioid use disorder. I had thought that you know that was something that that almost couldn't happen to me. Um, I think alcohol is always a little bit different because it's so culturally accepted that i I saw and understood drinking alcohol, but I couldn't understand drugs um, or using you know illicit or prescription medication uh, or misusing it was something that that I would find myself doing. but but what I found was, you know, that it's really this this slow and slippery slope for some people. Um, you know, when I was in high school, what what felt very normal was people would drink, you know, and on the weekends we would we would drink and we would have house parties, and um, it felt pretty innocent, right? It felt safe, it felt normal, felt like that's what kids do. We're experimenting, and and from there, um, it was really just this progression of. You know, once I had crossed that line and I was drinking before I was 21, it just became a little bit easier to say, hey, you know what, marijuana is around. I'll try that. Um, And again, the first time you do it, and I think that this is an important way to think about it for people who, who haven't experienced this, right? But, you know, that first time I smoked marijuana, I didn't think that I would then smoke marijuana every day for the years to come. Um, I thought it would be something that I could do casually. I could do it at a party and I could put it down. And what I found was that I loved the effect. You know, these these substances work. They have an effect um, that makes us feel good. And, And for me, that was a feeling that I chased. And, you know, despite negative consequences, it was something that I continued to look forward to and find a way to do more of. And it was really through that you know, through that first step from, from alcohol to marijuana, where then I've kind of opened myself up to what are, I considered at the time drugs. And, you know, and the progression continued. I went to cocaine in high school, and, and that became um, what I sort of say was my drug of choice throughout high school. And, and at that point in my life, I'm 16 years old, and just two years before, I couldn't fathom the person that I was. Um, I couldn't imagine a life where I'm lying to my friends, I'm lying to my parents, I'm lying to everyone around me because I know this is wrong, right? I, I have parents that that wouldn't condone it, even my friends wouldn't condone it. Um, but I felt like it was a solution to a lot of the the teenage angst that I was feeling, the, you know, the discomfort of sort of coming of age and and the drugs provided a really, effective uh, short-term solution to that. And again, I couldn't see where this was headed. I thought this could be a phase. I thought, um, you know, I would I would eventually, I would grow up and I would stop. And, you know, my first attempt at that was an attempt to go to a college that was far away. So I was, I did quite well in high school um, and I was accepted to 13 colleges and had a lot of different scholarship opportunities. And I, intentionally made the decision to go to a school in South Carolina because none of my friends were going to be there. And I thought without those friends, I would stop using, right? I would just I would have a fresh start. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an expression in recovery that I think is um, useful in any setting. And it's, you know, we bring ourselves with us wherever we go. (laughs) And and that was sort of the start of me realizing that maybe it wasn't a friend's problem, maybe it was a me (laughs) problem. Um, but it continued to progress, and from there, I, you know, I, I switched to uh, prescription medication that, you know, I was sourcing illegally from drug dealers. I was on opioids, and it, you know, it really went downhill for me from there very, very quickly. Um, that's where all of these other things, the the images, the, you know, that that picture of what I thought a drug addict looked like began to be closer and closer to my reality, Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, I became sort of incapable of taking care of my responsibilities. My health was deteriorating. I was losing weight. I was sick. Um, if I wasn't high, I was in withdrawal and I was stealing from my family and anybody around me to try to maintain this high to something that was very expensive and I couldn't afford. And, you know, I knew at that point that I needed to stop and I didn't know where to turn to. And there's this, you know, this sense of stigma and shame that goes along with this disease that can be so crippling that, you know, I, I remember at that that time thinking, you know, I didn't know much about treatment, um, but I knew people who had gone to to rehab. And I always thought like, that's, you know, that's great for them, but I can't do that you know, I I couldn't do that. I couldn't put my family through that. I couldn't put that shame on them by, you know, identifying that their son is a, you know, a drug addict. And, and I also didn't know what other help was available. I just thought that was it, right? You go away for 28 or 30 days and, and that's how you fix these problems. So I tried to do everything I could to avoid that. And, you know, my life sort of came to a head at, at 20 years old, um, I found out that a girl that I was seeing was pregnant and I was going to become a dad. And at this point in time, you know, I used every bit of willpower that I had to stop using. I tried, you know, honestly, everything that I could think of, um, from using other medication to try to taper myself down and switch substances to, I tried to become a police officer. You know, I, I went through, I took the exam, I, you know made it all the way to when i needed a physical and that said i can't go because i know i'll i'll fail the drug test right um but i was desperate i was willing to try anything other than asking for help because at that point in time i didn't see this as the medical issue i saw it as i was a bad person i saw it that you know i couldn't ask for help because i was too ashamed to ask for help and when my daughter was born, I I found that that wasn't enough, right? I wasn't able to stop. Um, I continued to use. And and for the first year after she was born, I continued to use in that same fashion. And, you know, finally found myself confronted by by my family and, and was confronted and offered an opportunity to go get treatment. And I remember some of the things that went through my mind then, right? Because I'm at this point i'm 22 years old i have a 1 year old daughter you know i had dropped out of school and i'm working full time and i'm i'm trying to trying to keep the wheels on this thing and they're you know they're just falling off but i i felt at that point that you know there were so many barriers i couldn't go away from my daughter for that long what would happen if i left work for a month would i be able to go back what would happen if Um, to my family and my relationships if they found out. And it was a really scary prospect to think about going away to treatment. Really, I think almost entirely because I didn't understand it. Um, But when I got there and I was introduced to the idea that this was a disease and it required, you know, long-term treatment and care and could be managed, right? It's a disease that people can and do recover from Um, if they're given the right tools and resources and support. And, you know, so I was fortunate to have access to really high quality, long-term treatment and a supportive sort of environment where I could come back to that was structured um, and had a lot of accountability. And I think that that's another really important part is that it's not just an episodic treatment. It's a long-term care model that we need to talk about when we look at this um, because it doesn't just get fixed in 30 days. Um, but I'll fast forward just a little bit from there you know from the the 22 year old that was so afraid to get help um, you know that couldn't imagine a life where I didn't use drugs to what you know a little bit about what my life looks like today and why I think it's important that we share these stories to humanize this, right? Because there's, you know, the the current estimate is that there's more than 23 million Mm -hmm. Americans in recovery. And, you know, that's that's a very significant number. But culturally, you know, different segments of recovery, especially based in sort of 12 steps, there's this principle of anonymity. So what we find is that so often people do recover, um, and go on to lead really meaningful, positive lives, but they don't talk about it. You know, so we we rarely see the positive side of this. We see the news stories. We see the hundred and eight thousand people a year dying of overdose. We see, you know, the images portrayed in movies that look like somebody who's homeless or living under a bridge. Mm-hmm. We don't see the high functioning people, you know, that are struggling, or the high functioning people that have regained. Some control over their lives and are in recovery. So, you know, I've had the opportunity now. I work for care and treatment centers. Um, and it's been such a gift for me to be able to work in an environment where I can be really open about this. And I know that that's not easy in every setting, you know, in different corporate settings or in a healthcare setting, that can be much more challenging to be as transparent. Um, but I think back to your point at the beginning if we humanize this and look at it you know through that lens of a disease model and through the lens of healthcare rather than a moral failing you know it's it's not that different from if you struggle with depression or if you struggle with a different mental health disorder or chronic disease such as diabetes it can be managed um and it can be something that you know you can come out on the other side in a really, really good spot. Uh, but if we don't talk about that, we keep people from getting help because they're afraid to ask for help. And they don't know what's out there. They don't know that there's there's many steps that you could take before it would need to get to residential treatment. Um, so I think you know it's it's important for me to be able to share a story that is just one you know one story. Like I said, there's more than twenty three million. Of these stories out there, and I think the more that we can get them into, just into our culture and society, so that people see the hope, um, you know, more and more people will be willing to talk about it, and that stigma will come down. The last thing I'll mention is, you know, and I think this is sometimes misunderstood, is there was a study last year that, you know, that shows that seventy-five percent of people who struggle with an alcohol or substance use disorder at some point in their lives, do eventually recover. And that's with or without treatment. Many of them don't end up in the traditional treatment setting, um, but they experience a time where they have a you know an unhealthy uh, relationship or use of substances or alcohol, and it does get better. But again, people don't like to talk about that because it's uncomfortable.
0: Interesting. Yeah. 23 million people, for goodness sakes. That means, you know, most of us probably know somebody, whether we realize it or not, but it's certainly not a topic we're gonna, you know, hi, my name's Terry. Do you have a, you know, are you in recovery? And be like, huh? Yep. Um, but, you know, you also talked about the depression and anxiety piece of it. I think people have a hard time talking about that too. I think we, we don't want to appear weak, right? Yeah. I mean, most people are not, totally honest with what they're struggling with or what they're going through and and we don't always want to be honest i mean that's the last thing that you know hey how are you doing today really today is not very good well you know you start listing off all the troubles in your life right people don't really want to hear that but i think that on that flip side if if i wasn't complaining about you know the small little details of the it's like really you know as my kids would say first world problem um But it was something deep, like, you know what, I'm really struggling with my depression today, that people, I think we would find they would be more open and willing to help and would like to have the opportunity to help than we think. But we still don't want to talk about those things. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, with those numbers there's a lot of people out there that are struggling and, you know, and I find it interesting too, in your case, with your story that, you know, you came from a good family and yet you still did not feel that you could go to those loving parents and say, I need help. And so the people that don't have that loving support system, you know, how much more than they probably struggle with that thought of, you know, I, I can't, like, who who can I go to for this? So it's just, um, I don't know if fascinating is the right word, but it is just the more stories I hear, it is interesting to hear those internal struggles that one with a substance use disorder is going through. And, you know, you get there different ways, but a lot of it is very consistent in terms of, I'm, you know, I'm just embarrassed. I cannot reach out for help. I don't know. What do I do with my life? Now is not the time for this. But yet you still recognize that help is needed. And the question is, how do I how do I get it? Um, So yeah, there's a lot a lot to unpack there. And um, and you talked about the barriers. And you know, when we start talking about, yes, you had a, a daughter that you were you know, trying to support and through work. And so that was definitely an obligation and a responsibility. And when you start thinking about, you know, the healthcare professional that is working, obviously their income matters. And in some cases it might be a single parent or school loans or what have you. And so those are all things too, that are in the back of their mind that I now is not the right time. You know, I can't do it right now. Um, So those are just one of the barriers. Now your treatment center. Let's talk about that a little bit. I I believe you have a special arm for healthcare professionals. And do you need to get a drink of water? Because I can see you're struggling with. Uh, you got something stuck there.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. If you, if, I'm, I'm, I'm fine now. Okay. But, um, no, I I'm I'm recovering from strep throat, so it's just a.
0: Ah. Uh, okay. A,
1: yes. Um. But you know, I think you, you touched on a lot of things in terms of the barriers, and, and one of the things you said it you know felt like it wasn't the right time, and and I think that that's something that you know if I could highlight and there's one takeaway for anyone who's listening, you know that that knows somebody or might be struggling themselves is, uh you know from my experience both personally and working in this field, you know, for everybody it, it it's never gonna feel yeah. like the right time always a barrier there's always an obligation there's always something that's going to make it challenging um and because of that you know usually the right time is as soon as possible right before it it elevates or gets worse or something um happens that could have more permanent consequences so you know so i think that that's that's a really hard thing to To grasp and to to go with i know if someone told me that when i was struggling i don't know if i would have would have jumped at getting help right then and there but you know i think you can't say that enough right um another one of the barriers that you know we didn't really talk about but i think is really important and leads into you know what we do at karen is this sense of you know who's going to be in the milieu at At a treatment center, if you go into a, a rehab, and and I think there's often oftentimes, especially for working professionals and and what are considered sort of high functioning individuals who you know may be really successful in a career, may have you know multiple areas of their lives that are going very well. Financially, they could be great. Um, you know, but there's a that, that doesn't mean you're immune to a substance use disorder or an alcohol use disorder. Um, And some of the barriers specifically there that come into play is, you know, especially if you are the, you know, the the breadwinner, for lack of a better term, you know, if you are the one providing the financial resources to your family, um, you know, one, there's fear, but there's also a a difficulty on the family members potentially to confront you about it because they feel like they need you to keep working. Yeah and and you and and for the person who's doing it that's going to be internalized also right you know if i if i do this if i lose income for you know a week a month two months you know what's going to happen to my family so it it adds so much more pressure but it adds a lot to the family dynamic to make it really really challenging but back to the milieu Um, What I think is important to know, and Karen does this really well, but we're not the only one, right? There are a lot of treatment centers out there that are very, very intentional about, you know, putting specific groups of patients together when you go to treatment. Um, So when I went to treatment, I, I found myself in what was called a young adult male program. So it was specifically just the 18 to 26 year old, sort of those who had not yet you know, really establish themselves in a career or stable footing on their own yet. Um, Which is important because, you know, a 35-year-old who has a home, has a wife, maybe has young children, they're going to have very different circumstances. And and what's so important in recovery and in treatment, um, but really in recovery, is finding that connection. You know, we don't want people to go in and feel like, you know, they can point to everyone around them and say, well, I shouldn't be here because I'm not like them. And so creating environments where the patient milieu is, is very similar. Um, You know, so, so Karen, we have programs specifically for uh, executives, you know, people who work in are very successful in their career. And, you know, a program like that allows them to continue working while they're in treatment. And they're with other people who are very similar. They're in that same spot where, if they're talking about their family dynamic, they're going to find some relatability. And it's the same thing with our healthcare professionals program. In that, you know, in that program, it's it's people who have a license on the line. You know, it's a doctor, it's a nurse, it's someone who, you know, could potentially lose their their livelihood. You know, lose the license to practice medicine. Um, and we have a team of clinicians that understands that and knows what that process looks like and knows what it looks like to work with the licensing boards in order to maintain that and, and work effectively with the the monitoring programs that come into play post-treatment uh, for healthcare professionals. But again, when when you have someone who has that fear and and shame and stigma, you know, going into treatment, when you walk in and you can be in a room of other people and see that, hey, I'm not the only one, you know, it's if you're in a room with other physicians, you're going to feel much more comfortable much more quickly. And and that's a benefit for the treatment process, right? Because you can you can get more out of it um, because right. you'll be much more actively yeah, engaged. I, th- I think it start. would be
0: also to another advantage might be that it's don't make excuses. It, you know, because everyone in that room is like, okay, you're just, yeah. you know, that doesn't make, stop yeah, that, I, you know, let's just get real. For somebody who's brand yeah. new coming in, that's still yeah. a little bit in denial,
1: yeah, and it also it also allows us to really tailor what the what the treatment mm-hmm. you know education looks like, right sure. you know we have we have a program for lawyers as well, and it's you know so if you're giving this information to a patient, um, you know if it's an eighteen year old you're probably going to need to deliver it in a different way than somebody who's been through medical school and is a you know successful surgeon. They sure. they just have a different understanding when you're talking about a medical condition. So the program is really set up to do that. Um, so again, I think you know related to diversion programs or anyone who's struggling in a healthcare setting is knowing that you know there are options out there. There are specialty programs that are really tailored to to the needs of a healthcare worker. And you're not going to be in a position where you feel like, you know, I I don't belong. Yeah,
0: no, I think that's great. I think that's a fantastic model. Do you have? um, You probably don't have statistics off the top of your head, although maybe you do. Of healthcare professionals that come through your your program, do you see most of them going back into some, some form of healthcare, and their recovery is successful long term? So the
1: large, large majority do. The one that you know we we do see more often than not, they, they wind up finding a new specialty is an anesthesiologist because of yeah. the access to diversion um, and just the access that they have to really, really powerful medications. But really in, in just about every other specialty, we see that they do go back. Um, and the other thing that's really, I think special about healthcare workers because of the, um physicians monitoring programs specifically and and you know also with nursing uh monitoring programs is that the outcomes are really really good the success rate for recovery is incredibly high because there's very long-term accountability um so it's it's not easy right but they're they're almost forced into longer-term drug testing and monitoring yeah. Um, and that accountability and additional support really, really helps to drive up outcomes where you know in a in a space where you know typical treatment outcomes are not where we want them to be, uh, because not everyone has access to that ongoing care and accountability yeah. and monitoring, um, the outcomes in the healthcare field are very high right. okay. for that reason.
0: Do you know, do you find any better success? I mean, we usually say in the healthcare setting, you know, let's find them as fast as we can, because the sooner we find them, the higher the chances are of of recovery. Certainly the higher the chances finding before they cause harm to themselves or somebody else. But in terms of the recovery, I mean, do you feel that that's an accurate statement? If you find them quicker, then they have a higher chance?
1: Yes. Um, And I think that that's that is accurate across the board, you know, not just with, with health sure. um, but yeah. you know, like with most, most diseases, you know, if you catch it in an earlier stage, um, you know, the, the ability to treat it becomes much more dynamic. If you don't have to go right to the most extreme methods of, you know, that really long-term intensive inpatient treatment, if you can catch something early, um, you know, there's a much higher likelihood of success with someone just doing an outpatient program, right. um, you know, or success with meeting with an individual therapist. So, the outcomes are much better. It you know, it varies substance to substance. Um, you know, what the the true impact is on a person's brain and how long that takes to heal. But you know, without a doubt, if you can catch this sooner, um, the outcomes are are much better because people are in a more receptive spot in order to receive the treatment. Okay,
0: all right. And you had said something when I heard you speak prior that I thought was a really great statement. And in fact, I I have given that to somebody else who um, has a loved one who just checked themselves into an alcohol recovery program. But someone had told you, you are not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to get help. And um, you know we have to remember that, yeah. And we've kind of talked about that today, right? It's it's they're sick. It's like other medical conditions. Now you have written a book, right? Can you tell yes. us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Um, so, and really quickly, I do want to say, I mean, that you know that message when I heard that for me, that that really opened the door um, because I I did believe that I was a bad person and I had never been really introduced to this as a as a disease or something that it could be solved through healthcare. Um, you know, I thought I was just incapable of making the right decisions, even though I wanted to. Um, so the book, so my uh my mother and I uh co-authored a memoir that was released last year called Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, a Mother's Battle for Her Son. And and for us, it's you know it's really special, but it's important to to talk about that that this is a family disease, right? This impacts the whole family. When someone is struggling, um, it's really something that is incredibly hard on the family, and and the family involvement is something else that that really does improve outcomes, right? If the family can get on board and understand this, um, the patient can can have a much higher likelihood of getting better. But so our book is really a journey of what our family went through, and we wrote it in alternating voices um, so that each chapter, you know, goes section by section where I'll write and she'll write. Um, And it's a really raw and vulnerable account of what it looks like. So when it starts out um, and we're telling the stories, it's almost like we're living in two different worlds, even though we're living in the same house. Um, because of the deception and and me trying to lie and manipulate about what was happening um, and her not seeing it right away. And I think that that's something that we can relate to with, with co-workers, yeah. with family members, um, you know, that even with so many of the, the signs right in front of us, it can be hard to believe. Um, and we might, you know, in my mom's case, and I think this happens in the work setting also, is even if we think it, we might not. We just don't want to believe it. Yeah. You know, we want to think that maybe it's something else. Maybe there's some other reason that you know these things are happening. Oh, you're a teenager,
0: for goodness' yeah. sakes. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah.
1: And and yeah, and it's it's trying to figure out what's normal, what's not, um, right. what's experimenting, and and what crosses that line. Is there a line, and where is it? Right. Um, but as the book progresses and we find ourselves sort of entering into recovery, um, it really gives us an opportunity for the you know our stories to come together, right? For that, you know, it's kind of what is truth, you know, and, and the beginning of the book, it's it's both of our truths, but they're very very different. Um, and through recovery and and sort of pulling together that story, you know, one we were able to rebuild a relationship where. Um, And I think this is important for everybody, you know, as a, a mother who wants to love and trust her son, you know, I had stolen from them financially. I had lied to them. I had done things that, you know, maybe no one other than a mother could forgive, Mm -hmm. but I know that she really struggled with the concept of, could she trust me again? Um, And, and we see that, no matter what the relationship is, can I trust this person again? And what we found is that through recovery, through an opportunity to, you know, slowly rebuild that relationship, it doesn't come back overnight. You don't just take away the the active use and all of the sudden all of the behaviors and everything is fixed. It takes time and it takes a lot of effort, um, but you can rebuild trust. Right. And, and I think for someone... You know who's struggling that's so important to know that you know you might not get every relationship back i know i didn't get every relationship back and that's okay um but the ones that i did get back and the new relationships that i've formed uh since being in recovery are just so incredibly meaningful Mm -hmm. and they're built on a a much stronger foundation than anything that i had had before
0: Um,
1: something i always feared right was you know who would i lose who you know who would be unwilling to to forgive um you know and it started with having to forgive myself because i really um was not happy with the things that i was doing when i was in active use um yeah but i
0: felt like do you have any suggestions for the family member who is walking side by side with someone going through the recovery process. And I would imagine I, I have not, not gone through either side. So I, you know, it's, it's very foreign to me from that intimate perspective, but I have to think that it would be very natural for the mother, the father, the spouse, what have you to, to be afraid that there will be a relapse to not quite, you know, where are you going? What are you doing? Who are you, you know, like, are you sure you didn't, you know, I mean, but not wanting to make the person feel bad, but yet wanting them to be honest, but to maybe ask a question if they're kind of suspicious of something, you know, I mean, how, any suggestion for the loved one that has somebody, you know, knowing how that feels
1: from that side? So I have two that I often give out. And the first one really is you know, for both sides. If you don't know if this person is struggling yet or not, um, but if it's you know if it's a family member or a loved one, I, I usually tell people to trust your gut. If you feel like something is off, um, there's a very real possibility that it might. And this is a disease that you know, the denial can be very, very strong for a family member because they don't want to um, you know admit that this is what it is. The other thing I I think that's so important on the recovery side for family members to know is that it's important that they get support too. you know, back to the idea that this is a family disease. Um, So much about recovery for the, you know, the individual who's affected is about finding community and peers that you can relate to and identify with um, and finding support through that. That doesn't have to be sort of like a 12 step group, but just finding. A positive peer group that that is supportive and understand what's going on. I think for for family members, it's very much the same, and this often gets missed. Right? Is that it's their problem? You know, they need to do this work. They need to to get better. Um, but you know what we see is that when family members heal and find their own healing, um, that usually lifts up the individual who was struggling also. Um, but it allows you to find an opportunity to to find that healing, sort of separate from how that other person is doing, right? Because okay. this, you know, it's a disease that um, can be very difficult, right? Relapse, um, a reoccurrence of use, can happen. You know, it's not a part of my story, but it's a frequent part of of people's stories and experience with this disease. Um, so allowing family members to have support throughout that is really important so that they're not tied as directly to the day-to-day emotions of someone who's- And then I guess maybe through that
0: healing process too, then both sides kind of find a way to keep those those communication lines open and just touch base. I just want to make sure you're doing okay, but I don't want to harass you to the point of- you know, making you like, shut up, stop asking me, you know, I'm fine. <laughs>
1: yes. um, it's, it's yeah. a hard, it's a hard balance. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, family communication is difficult with or yeah. without um, a substance yeah, use disorder. That's and, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, that's elevated when there is someone who's, you know, really actively struggling, but, but you're totally right. You know, if, if, if both sides are in their own process of healing, you know, and I say that sort of intentionally instead of recovering, but, but just healing, right. Because healing. it's a very yeah. painful experience for everyone involved. Yeah. Um, if you or a loved one is struggling with this disease. Right.
0: Okay, great. Well, thank you again. And um, I look forward to reading your book. I haven't read about, I haven't read it yet, but I do look forward to reading it. And, you know, one of the things that, Uh, we didn't discuss today, but one of the pieces to your barriers was your family's reputation, right? Your mother is fairly prominent and has been for a while. Um, And congratulations to her win to the U.S. state uh, representative again. Um, But, you know, we all have those reasons why we wouldn't want to come forward. And it's, you're not unique, and those of you out there that you know may be struggling are not unique either. So it's there's no time like the present. Just just do it, right? We can go to the Nike commercial. Just do it. Just do it. Uh, I like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So It'll you. be
0: hard. It'll be hard, but on the back end, you know, then the reward is there.
1: Yeah, it's so. it's usually it's what what seems like the hardest and the worst day or decision. Yes. Uh, can really be a foundation for a very bright future. Yes. Uh, but yes, to your point, being the the son of a, you know, a politician, um, or yeah. public servant. Yeah. And, you know, for me was one of the things that I thought I couldn't do that to right. her. I didn't want to jeopardize right. her career. But, you know, right. again to your point, we all have something. We've all yeah. ha- we all have a barrier that we feel like we can't overcome. Um but if I end on anything, it's that, you know, if, if we look at this as healthcare, you know, those barriers really start to melt away because if we had a different disease or a different condition, those barriers do not come into play without the stigma. So I'm right. grateful for you having me on and, and highlighting these stories because I think it is so important that yeah. we talk about it and shift, you know, culturally how we view this Yeah, Uh, Because if we can bring it into mainstream medicine and view it that way, um, there would be many, many fewer suffering individuals and families out there.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. All right. And with that, we will conclude this. Thank you very much, Harry, for your time and for sharing your story. Thanks, Terry.